Hey everybody, it's Scott. It's the start of a new year, just the first couple of days of 2020, really. Happy New Year, everybody. And already I find myself in a transition period. I have to move, I have to find a new place to live, and I'm angry that I have to do this. I have conflict with my next door neighbor. We were friends at first, but, uh, but that didn't last long. Now there's just bad blood between us and I, I want to get away from it. I've just moved so many times in the last 15 years and I'm tired of it. Just fucking tired of it. I could have stayed here and tried to, to fight more. Part of me's mad that I, I didn't try to fight more. But as we learned a couple episodes back, episode 13, the Matt episode, we're just here for a little while and we need to make the most of our time. So instead of fighting, I'm just leaving, packing up my stuff. On today's episode, we're going to meet a young woman named Elise. She's Canadian. She's from Montreal, so she's French-Canadian. Elise is young, but she's been through a lot. Also on today's show, we're going to celebrate Ninja Theory's Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. And if there's just a hint of anger underneath my words on today's episode, well, you guys know why. As soon as I'm done recording, it's right back to the boxes. <laughs> Welcome to Heavily Pixelated. I'm glad you're here. Heavily Pixelate is a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. So, uh, my name's Elise. The most difficult thing throughout my life has been chronic illness, which I have been battling my entire life. I cannot actually really remember a time where I was healthy. I've, I've always been dealing with something. I remember just even at like five years old, doubling over on sidewalks, going to school because I was in so much stomach pain. So I had celiac disease. I do have celiac disease still. So <laughs> it doesn't what, go away. Were you born but with that? Yes, okay. yes. It's an autoimmune disorder. It is an intestinal disease. It's genetic and potentially environmental, but I mean, no one really knows the cause. I'm fine as long as I don't eat gluten, but I didn't, we didn't know that I had celiac until I was 10 years old. I have a number of friends and colleagues who have celiac, but honestly, I, I don't really know how it works. It's the villi in the intestine that gets flattened, and that prevents you from absorbing gluten properly and, absor and absorbing uh, uh, nutrients properly. I remember I was... 10 years old when I was diagnosed and I was very confused. I remember my mom after she got the test results she came and pulled me out of school like pulled me out for my lunch at school and she talked to me uh, at home we were sitting at the kitchen table and I was asking her all the different things like what I could eat what I couldn't eat so I was like can I eat hot dogs and she was like not hot dog buns I'm like can I eat cookies I'm like can I eat bread and every th I remember just asking question after question after question, and yeah. every single one was a no. I was, like, horrified and heartbroken. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, what am I going to eat? So celiac is one of those things that you just kind of have to learn to live with. There is no solution, certainly no easy solution. But that's not the only thing that Elise has to contend with. Probably one of the toughest ones was chronic fatigue syndrome, which is really hard for me to talk about. I don't have it anymore. 
but I had it since I was from ages 12 to 16. We went to doctors, and doctor after doctor told me I was fine until I finally was diagnosed. But what happened was it started with strep throat. The strep throat went away, but I didn't get better. Chronic fatigue is a very, it's a difficult illness to explain. <laughs> because yes, fatigue is the you know, main symptom, but you do also experience migraines, you experience joint pain. There, there are all sorts of symptoms with it. And it's not just a normal sleepiness or tiredness that you'd feel maybe after like a long day's work or something mm-hmm. like that. It's much more debilitating. WebMD, which is not the most reliable of resources I know, describes chronic fatigue syndrome or CFS as a deep tiredness, unrelieved by rest or sleep, feeling even worse after physical or mental exertion. I had it for four years and for Gosh, three of those years, I didn't go to school at all. So Elise has kind of a one-two punch situation. She's got celiac disease and she's got CFS. Because of those two things, her parents kept her home and Elise was homeschooled. I remember some days I wasn't able to go up and down the stairs. Some days I wasn't able to leave the house. So you were so tired. Yeah. You were so fatigued. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even go upstairs. Yep. I mean, you would get just, like, really out of breath. I mean, you'd feel like collapsing. Like, I wouldn't be able to to even walk around outside that much and stuff. Elise, as I said at the top of the show, is Canadian. Her mother was a stay-at-home mom. Her dad's a university professor. Elise also has an older brother. She's currently living and working in the U.S. I'm here on a, what's called, a non-immigrant visa. Video games have been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. What was your first game? My first... Like the first one that really <laughs> meant something to you. Donkey Kong Country. <laughs> on the SNES. Great game. Yeah. It was the game my brother and I played, the game my dad and I played. We all adored it. SNES still holds a big place in my heart. Elisa's passion for video games only grew from there. I really got into games when I was a teenager. I think when I played the first Assassin's Creed was when I was like, wow, like, I am so impressed with how stories can be told in this medium and just like the open world and the, the, the mix of the sci-fi and the historic. That just totally grabbed me. So Elise is growing up, she's still got her health issues, but she realizes that games are getting more sophisticated and her tastes are getting more sophisticated too. And Assassin's Creed, especially Assassin's Creed 2, was a bit of a turning point for Elise. That was the game that I played and I was like, I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I know I want to do something with video games. Something in this general direction. Something here. I've always been a fan of storytelling. I read lots of books as a kid, and especially when I was sick, I read a lot, and I played a lot of these terrible MMOs. Having the internet and having access to games made Elise feel less alone. The internet was kind of what saved me, actually, through CFS especially. That's so weird because 
like uh, if without the internet you would have been kind of isolated yeah but you could st- but with the internet and with things like MMOs you could connect with other people yep 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 that's I, such a huge I met people through games and there's still people from that time that I talked to today yeah and I've met in person several times and like they've become lifelong friends mm-hmm. I would have been completely isolated if it wasn't for that I think what I really liked was these these virtual worlds. Like, it, it, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Um, it kind of gives you the sense of freedom, even though I didn't really have freedom. Being able to walk around, being able to chat with people and make friends and have fun, despite not leaving my house, that was a huge deal for me. You grew up not very strong. You you became well acquainted with your own vulnerability Mm -hmm. and from a very early age I think it's a common fantasy for kids to feel kind of bulletproof and immortal and you felt very mortal Mm -hmm. and very vulnerable but with video games it sounds like this was an opportunity for you to pretend that you weren't vulnerable that you weren't mortal yep it sounds super healthy to me yeah yeah no it, it really really was like it wasn't just an escape it was just it was just a way to connect with the world i mean i lived for that i did it exposed me to all these different hobbies that i didn't know i <laughs> didn't know i had before or or, or passions that i didn't know i had before rather especially cuz these mmos i mean they're such silly ones but they were Cabo Hotel, Puzzle Pirates, RuneScape, um, those were like the major three that I played. What was the first one? Habo Hotel. Habo Hotel? <laughs> yes. Is it a Japanese game? No, it's Finnish, actually. Finnish, okay. Yeah. I've never heard of it. It's really, frankly, more and more than anything, like a glorified a virtual. These are chat just room. a few of the reports from people who have ventured inside Habo Hotel. Here now is a man with a BBO Hotel, Habo Hotel. It looks like a kid-friendly, very colorful version of Second Life. Puzzle Pirates is much more gamey. Runescape is much more gamey. But those are the three where I found friends. I just loved it. I was using games to cope, which is something I still do. I think a lot of people use games to cope. And I think so. I think games are, are used as a coping mechanism far more often than we realize and that we give them credit for. Yeah, I think so too. I think they're just so powerful in so many different ways. Elise and I had this conversation in Los Angeles in 2019. We were in the quietest place I could find in a very busy hotel lobby. We are in the LA Live Entertainment District, not far from the Staples Center. E3 is what brought Elise and I to Los Angeles. We are uncomfortably close to a pair of elevators. This is our first time meeting each other. Elise is little, and I I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean she's a small person. There's a fragility about her. But even now, in these first few moments of meeting her, there's an obvious great strength inside her small frame. You talked about the fact that you like stories a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you were always partial to stories. And I know you were homeschooled. What were your favorite subjects? Were they English? Mm -hmm. Always English. Always English. It's a little different in Quebec. Like, you start high school at grade 7, which is you're 12 years old. (laughs) From then on, English was my favorite subject. I would write short stories in my free time, sometimes fan fiction based off the games I played. Okay. So give me an example. God, it's so embarrassing. (laughs) But I wrote a lot of, like, Neopets fan fiction. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did, like, because they, they actually had, like, competitions on Neopets, yeah. and so you could, like, send in your stories, and Habbo did the same thing, like, you could send in your stories, and then some, and then at one point I won something on Habbo, so I thought that was, like, the coolest thing ever. Because you were so good at, at writing these stories, and you won, you won a prize? I won a prize. What was your prize? It was called a typo. It's a typewriter okay. furniture, a little virtual thing that was oh. rare and very expensive. Okay, but well, so, you got one. And I got one. I was so excited. <laughs> You're still a little proud of yourself. Oh, I am. <laughs> you must have felt liberated in a sense. Like, it's hard oh, to I write did. A story. I did. I mean, I think Habbo especially. So there were these things called like fan sites. So people, people that played Habbo would make these websites, and you could get jobs, which obviously we're not, we're unpaid. But you could help design the website. You could uh, be like a forum moderator. You could be a radio DJ. That was a big thing. I got into that where I would DJ and it would be this whole setup where you'd actually be streaming live on the air, like online. And people in the hotel on the game would all be in the same room and they would listen to you and then they would they would do like shout outs and stuff. It was this whole way of interacting and also like me finding kind of a persona. That was awesome. I loved that, and I also, like, found graphic design through that. I started building websites for people, (laughs) creating little forum signatures, and and it was so much fun. It was, frankly, like, this source of creativity for me. After years of being at the mercy of maladies that she never asked for, Elise, for the first time in her life, starts to develop a sense of agency. Games like Neopets and Habbo Hotel tell Elise that she's the one who's in control of her life. They show Elise that she has value, whether it's as a storyteller, DJ, or graphic designer. And not only are these games these silly games, helping Elise find value in herself, they're also connecting her with people. Once I got to grade 10, I started going back to school half-time. And boy, I hated that decision. And it's not because I hated school. Frankly, I was very excited to go back to school. I hated going half-time because I didn't know how to explain that to other kids. I would show up in some classes, wouldn't be there for others. I was this weird kid that kind of only went half to high school and I never explained why to anybody. My best friend and I started drifting, and she had, I had known her since elementary school. We had grown up together, and she had found new friends, and she, I think, found it hard because I was very shy. Frankly, I was so not used to socializing in person with people my age that, like, I didn't know what to do. I would just have so much social anxiety. She found that hard to, like, break through that. And through that time, I still played, like, Cabo and Puzzle Pirates especially and started to play more single-player games, like 
Assassin's Creed. I just started renting tons of games at Blockbuster, and that was still kind of my escape of finding something where I felt comfortable in, because I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I didn't feel comfortable at school with other kids. Still, still I kept thinking to myself, man, I can't wait to get back online and talk to my like online friends, because these people don't get me. How did you go from, from the youthful sick a lot of the time? Sick, yeah. shy, shy, terrified yeah, of life. Social anxiety, <laughs> well, terrified of life, yeah, yeah. To, to this person. Now you're like, we're doing this interview in Los Angeles, like this is a stressful oh, conference. Dude, I have to pinch myself some days. I mean, I, a lot of the time I don't think about those days, and I don't want to think about those days when I was really sick. The times that I do, I'm like, I was convinced that I would never be better. I was convinced I would never do anything with my life that I would never date anybody, that I would never achieve anything. I was, like, it's hard to explain what it's like to be completely convinced of those things, but you feel hopeless and you you see less value in life. So when I went back to high school, I started to, like, believe in myself slowly a little bit again, but I think really where I started to find out who I was and what things meant to me, that was really in Sejep, which is pre-college school in Quebec for two years. CEGEP. It's an acronym for the junior college system that Quebec offers. CEGEP is where Elise really found her footing and started to realize what she was capable of. And there I found like this awesome group of friends. People who liked games, people who liked writing, people who kind of viewed life and the world like I did. And I remember starting stage up and I told myself, I'm not going to tell anyone that I was sick. Because at that time I was better. And I was like, I don't want to be so normal. <laughs> that was like, I want to be so normal. I'm just going to go there and like be like everybody else. I mean, I realized in late stage up that I was queer, actually. And that was... You realized in what? In late, that I was queer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry, now I'm getting nervous. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. I no, just, no, I was that's like, okay. somebody had slammed the door when you yeah, said queer, sure. and I'm just like, did she say queer? Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that. I have no idea. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Thank um, you for sharing that. Totally. Uh, but, you share whatever you feel comfortable sharing. And, and yeah, I'm I realize so, I, I haven't even... I wish we had a, pro- a more private place where I know. we didn't have this. It was in late Sejep that I realized I was queer. Um, I was, I had my first boyfriend, John Carlo, who was the most annoying person I've ever met. <laughs> I was dating him, and I, I think I started to realize it, that I wasn't happy with that relationship, or I wasn't happy with a man. I think having gone through CFS for like four years of my life as a teenager in such formative years, this was always in the back of my head of like this attraction that I had to women. It was really hard for me to come to terms with it, especially when I got to Seja because I was like, I so badly want to be normal. with like all the gay kids <laughs> and like that just happened but then I was like well I'm the straight friend I have to be the straight friend like that's my identity now and and of course at this very delicate juncture in our conversation 
a baggage cart comes rumbling off the nearby elevator. I just... Anyway, I finally... Finally got through that and was able to accept it and come out to my parents. Was it hard to come out to your parents? Were they... How did they... <laughs> Um, you don't have to answer if you don't. I can. Uh, I I came out to one of my friends first, and then I came out to my mom. And I told her the way I, the way I approached it was I came out as bisexual first, and I told my mom like I'm pretty sure that I'm attracted to both genders. She was shocked. She was like, oh. I said, yeah, I think, um, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And, yeah, I was sitting at the kitchen table with her, and I said that I was pretty sure I was bisexual. And she said, well, you know, maybe you should, be, like, make sure that you're sure or whatever, and let's maybe not tell your dad yet. You know, he's going to be on vacation. Let's keep the stress low or whatever. And I remember feeling a little weird about that. At the time, being like, keep the stress low. It's... <laughs> Does this have to be such a stressful situation? And he's also a university professor. I would assume yeah. he would have somewhat evolved views so, of the world. My parents are Christian. Oh, okay. um, I see. Yes. That, that was what I was most nervous about. I didn't... They knew that I... Like, they had met my best friend at the time, Joseph. And he's gay. And they knew that he was gay. And they were really kind and welcoming and like that was never an issue so I, I figured like well hopefully it'll be okay with them but and it was I don't think they were sitting there being like being gay is a sin or anything like that but I think they were more concerned about me uh, having a difficult life or going down a path that's harder before I even came out to my dad, we had like my aunt and uncle, my American aunt and uncle who were visiting for like a week, who were both extremely homophobic and also very religious. Uh, that was so hard because they would just bluntly say things, horrible things about gay people. And my mom, I'd already come out to my mom and she didn't say anything to her brother. Nothing. And I remember that really hurt me. But there was also the complicated fact that, like, my dad didn't, uh, didn't know yet. And also, it's her brother, and she told me that she didn't want to risk her relationship with her brother. It was complicated, but they finally left, and, uh, we, you know, I came out to my dad with my mom there and um, he was good about it he was actually less surprised than my mom and he was like he's like there are moments where I wondered he was kind about it but they've always been frankly very frankly pretty good about it like I was never I was never worried about being kicked out of the house or being not accepted by them or anything like that I think generally it went, it went well I was always around, you know, atheists and agnostics, and my parents were very entrenched with the church. And my dad, he he does sermons at the church, you know. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. They're both like very, very, very involved. 
and that's a, their faith is a huge part of their life. I think so much has changed with how I view myself and the confidence that I've gained. I mean, I had I had a friend tell me in high school that I, whenever I'd go down the hallway and someone would be coming in the other direction, I would just hug the hug the wall and be as far away from them as I could. I started to gain confidence and figure out, really it was through writing. In Sejep I joined the school paper and I started off as a writer and then I moved to becoming the news editor. I think it was that role of leadership. It was my first ever kind of role of leadership. I had this crew of writers and I'd have to give them deadlines and I'd have to assign stories and it was my first time ever doing something like that and at first I remember like even just talking in front of everyone in the room was hard. I slowly became more comfortable with it and gained the respect of others around me. Like I felt like my peers at the school paper respected me and that they thought I, I did my job well. I think I was able to draw from that, be like, well, I can be confident because they know I'm doing a good job. That must mean I'm doing a good job. So that was kind of my first exposure to that. I really started to find my people and started to find my passion for writing journalistically. So yeah, I think my confidence, frankly, stems a lot from that period. Elise went to University, Concordia University, and she pursued a degree in journalism. I was, it was a little different in university because I was the kind of weird, a weird kid who was always pitching video game stories. <laughs> Elise was just a college kid at the time, but despite her age, she wrote a series of surprisingly sophisticated stories as school projects. She wrote about the company IDOS, which is based in Montreal, and their impact on the game development community in Montreal. She wrote about indie games and how they were changing the video game business. Uh, what else? You wrote these for the paper? I wrote these for classes. These but are yes. sophisticated for college-level stuff. Yeah, uh, I wrote about gay characters in video games. And then I got that published in a school journal. So with all different kinds of creative writing or nonfiction, whatever. So they accepted mine. That was cool. Oh, and it was an LGBTQ journal, actually. Okay. So that's why they were like, oh. So Elise is gaining confidence. She's finding her voice. And more importantly, she's finding an audience. I thought to myself, I really want to pursue this somehow and I found an internship through Game Informer. It was a video game site that I frequented a lot and I watched their videos and I knew they had an internship program and I was like, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet and apply. Elise got rejected by Game Informer. And I didn't get in. (laughs) Despite the rejection, Elise didn't give up. And then uh, a year later I tried again and I got in. All the way to Minnesota for three months. Uh, I got to meet the editorial team. That was probably like my biggest achievement yet in life at that point. There's lots of things I like about your story, but I mm-hmm. like the thing that I really admire is the fact that you applied and you didn't get in. But, mm-hmm. but you applied, you didn't get in, you're like, 
I'm going to apply again next year. Mm-hmm. And like that says something about your character, the willingness to try again. It was just something I, I really wanted and something that I wanted to work towards. And I was like, okay, so I got rejected. I was like, well, why did I get rejected? Maybe I need to improve certain things. So I started, you know, that was when I started to write more of those video game pieces for school. That was when a friend and I started a radio show together called Level Up. All about video games. Hey, hey, you're listening to Level Up on CJLO. This is a place where we talk about everything related to video games. So today we are going to continue our topic. We of did that through reality. the school, and it yes, was broadcast are. through all of Greater Montreal. Um, so we were like on the actual radio waves. <laughs> I like sent some of those sound clips and stuff off to Game Informer and sent them my articles I wrote for school. And at that point, they were like, "Hey, yeah, we we see that you know you you've you've got a lot in your portfolio at this point. We're happy to bring you in." One of Elisa's more recent afflictions is something called Crohn's disease. I haven't really touched upon this yet, but I have Crohn's disease. And I was diagnosed with that in 2013. The way it started was I was having trouble like keeping food down or, you know, um, like frequent trips to the bathroom and stuff. And mm-hmm. just from eating things like normal day things, we went to several doctors it's much more than just like an upset stomach like you get you can get very very sick just a quick recap celiac managing that chronic fatigue managing that but now elise has crohn's too seems like a lot for one person and my doctor was very optimistic he he said he said it's going to be very easy to treat you know we have these steroids that we're going to put you on and this maintenance medication and you're going to be fine was not the case. <laughs> no. Crohn's is probably the thing that's toughest. I had to try several different medications. The steroid, the high dose of steroids I was on was really tough. I was seeing someone at the time uh, who was very unsympathetic at times. Basically, I continued to be sick for like six months. And then finally, we got me onto this like heavy duty medication. A lot better now. But despite being a lot better now, I still have a lot of trouble. I mean, even during E3, like it's very stress related Crohn's, so it, you can get into flare ups when you're under stress, and that happens to me literally every E3. <laughs> I got sick on the plane, for example, and then um, yesterday. I was pretty sick for like half the day and then I was okay. I've learned now to just kind of power through things. I don't know if that's always the best answer, but that's how I've been able to keep doing my job and how I've managed for like as long as I can remember. It's like, okay, I've been dealt this kind of bad card and I'll do what I can and listen to my body when I can, but... I ask Elise if she's in a relationship right now. Yes. Yeah, I've been seeing this girl, Madison, for since like November. It was really funny because when we started dating, basically we texted each other and she told me she had feelings for me. And we were friends for like a year and a half yeah. before that. At that time, I had just gotten a call from my doctor telling me that I would have to go to the hospital because I was having a really bad Crohn's flare. So I texted Madison and I said, like, this is great and I feel the same thing. 
but I'm off to go to like the hospital to be admitted. <laughs> yeah. She knows who you are. She knows. She knows the I think sometimes it's a little hard yeah. for her and for me. Yeah. But you know, just with there, and especially this past year, I've had a lot of health stuff happen. Yeah. Um, I had some mental health stuff going on last summer, and then I had a Crohn's flare-up, and then I had a pulmonary embolism, mm -hmm. uh, which is a blood clot in your lung, which mm -hmm. can be very serious. But but I had that, and it was fine. Like They were able to take care of it, and I was on a blood thinner for a while. And then I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, which is still something I'm getting used to because it's only been a few months. Oh, God. But... Um, so you got to wear one of those things? got to wear that CPAP machine wow. every night. But it's been such a life changer. Like, I have actual energy now for E3. Elise has obviously had her fair share of health issues in her life. And every step of the way, time after time, video games were there for her. With video games, I think my appreciation just continued to increase for them when I got diagnosed with Crohn's because they actually ended up being this like method of pain management for me. I started to play more walking simulators. I started to play more uh, branching narrative games like the Telltale stuff, uh, Tales from the Borderlands, The Wolf Among Us, Walking Dead, and then things like Firewatch or like Dear Esther, even like exploration games like No Man's Sky. Those games had such a big impact on me. They were exactly what I was looking for when I was in pain. Because I wanted someone to tell me a story. <laughs> I wanted something that could distract me from pain, but something that I could still keep my focus on through that pain. So I would try to watch movies and I wouldn't be able to keep my attention. So I pulled up Telltale and I would play Batman. And I was like, hey, I think I can do this. I don't have to, to struggle. Like I can just be in a world and 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 get through that pain. I mean, Dear Esther is still one of my favorite games. Dear Esther, the gulls do not land here anymore. I've noticed that this year they seem to shun. And there's a narrator, Maybe and, and you listen to these beautiful poems yeah, and stories. And when you first um, landed here, Donnelly wrote that the herds were sickly. Exploring and caves and exploring cliff sides and, and listening to this like soothing voice telling me a story. There was once talk of a wind To this day, I'm just so excited whenever I see more games like that. I need that in my life. Like, I live for that. I, I love those kind of stories. And I'm so happy that the video game industry is making more of that kind of stuff. It's interesting because actually earlier this year, I played Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice for the first time. It came out in 2017, and for so long, I was like, I don't know if I can do it. You know, like, there are very severe, like, big mental health themes in there. And I had gone through my own battles with depression and anxiety, and I thought to myself, man, I don't know if I can handle that. I love that it's out there. I'm so happy this exists. But I'm not going to do it. But Elise eventually changed her mind. And I said, I'm going to give it a shot. If it ends up being too difficult, I'll just shut it off. So I start playing. It was hard at first, actually. Uh, I remember the first kind of world I went into, like there were, there were screaming ghosts, basically, and flames. And Senua had all these thoughts swirling in her head. 
Who are you? These, these angry and anxious voices. Doesn't matter. You're safe with me. Telling her what and what not to do. Right it was here. overwhelming. Nice and close so I can speak without alerting the others. But I kept playing and I started to feel like I was connecting with Senua. Let me tell you about Senua. Her story has already come to an end, but now it begins anew. We go through very different things in some level. Like, she's going through psychosis, and I've gone through chronic illness. It's breathing. But I felt that there was a connection because, like, I recognized the voices in her head. Because they sounded like me. This is a journey deep into darkness. There will be no more stories after this one. I remember cutting through enemies with my sword Why is she doing and feeling empowered. Despite these voices being like, you can't do it, you can't do it, you're not going to make it. And I was like, no, I'm going to make it. I thought back to like my parents and my family saying, you can't do it, you're not going to make it. You can't go back to school, you're sick. I never told you. You know, and I was like, no, I can fucking do it. Why aren't you looking And that was incredible like i've never felt that level of empowerment from a video game before why is she doing this i just soaked that in there's a growing rot this like black goo that's going up her arm and the game kind of tells you watch out like this is going to continue to consume senua i think the darkness changed them just like it changed her and eventually you will die permanently and you'll have to start the whole game over Hellblade has a very spare beauty about it. It gives the player almost no information. It aims to be experiential or immersive. Senua has a rash on her arm that is black. That's the black rot that Elise is talking about. Each time Senua is defeated in the game, the black rash grows a little bigger. And if the black rash, that rot, gets too big, Senua dies and it's game over. And there was this anxiety and this like unpredictability because it doesn't tell you how many times you can die without restarting the game. And it made me think like, that is exactly what chronic illness is like. I never know from one day to the next, like if I'm gonna have to restart my story or whatever, you know? It was a beautiful game. It felt validating, it felt cathartic. It was no longer me looking for escape, no longer me looking for a way to cope necessarily, or, or a way to manage pain. It was me looking for like validation. I remember the voices distinctly. The voice the voices of doubt, you can't do this. Like what are you thinking? Even now, as I'm editing the podcast, I hear those voices. I hear them all the time. And I love that they were there. It just made me immediately identify with her. Like, we're in this together. Yep, like, there's a vulnerability to her and this this sense of familiarity, I think, because everyone has those voices of doubt in their head. A great example of, of the voices happens very early in the game when Senua is climbing a tall ladder. And as she's climbing, the voices kick right in. Don't look down, look down. The voices say, don't look down, look down. Gives me chills to listen to that. It's what we do as human beings, with or without psychosis. 
We encourage and we also undermine ourselves every step of the way, all day long. I don't know what's going to come to me. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how long I'll be a Game Informer. And this Game Informer thing didn't come to you. You went out and found it. So yeah. You're likely going to have to go out and find a new role for Just... yourself. The future arrived sooner than expected for a number of Game Informer employees just a few months later. Game Informer laid off about a third of their editorial staff, including Elise. Elise cleaned out her desk at Game Informer and said goodbye to everybody. And then we didn't talk for a while. I tried to figure out a way that I could help Elise. But Elise, not surprisingly, was already helping herself. One of the oldest, most respected media outlets in North America is the Washington Post. The Post had announced a new venture focused entirely on video games. And of course, Elise was one of the first people they reached out to. Tell me what it was like when you found out about the Washington Post job. Uh, it was, it was exciting. Uh, frankly, it was a relief. It was a relief to have another option and frankly, something in journalism and something that I was actually passionate about. Like, I'm so, so, so excited about it. That moment when you found out like you're going to have to pull up your roots in, in Minneapolis and relocate to, of all places, uh, the most evil place in the United States right now, <laughs> Washington, D.C. How did you feel about that? Like, I'm envious oh, of you, but I also am kind of glad I'm not you. Like, that's a big change, you know? As scared as I was, I was also so excited. And part mm -hmm. of that was because I was so excited about the job. Gosh, moving to D.C. now, it's like, I do have a homesickness for Minnesota, you know? Yeah. Well, it's where, like it or not, it's, it's where you grew up a little bit. Like, there's a version of Elise that, that arrived in Minneapolis, and that Elise grew and grew and matured and, and went through things and had experiences there, who's you kind of have to leave behind in your rear view mirror. I think that is totally it. Like I had my childhood in Montreal and then I really, I really did kind of grow up into a, like a different person in Minnesota. Enjoy your first days at work. Just remember you won't have an infinite amount of first days in places like the Washington Post in your life. So just enjoy the hell out of it. Thank you. Hello. 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 Hey, this is Dom. How's it going? This is Dom Matthews, commercial director at Ninja Theory, creators of Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. Hi, it's going well. How are you? Hi, Dom. This is Scott, and Elise is the uh, obviously female voice on the line, although my voice probably sounds feminine from time <laughs> to time. Um, I wanted to bring you two together, and mostly this is a chance for Elise to, to just tell you a little bit about her story uh, mm. and what she's been through and, and what your game really did for her. I mean, thank you so much for coming on this call with us, Dom. And uh, like Scott's saying, you know, um, Hellblade kind of holds a special place in my heart. I, I I played it for the first time earlier this year, and I ended up feeling very validated uh, and, and seeing myself in, in Senua's journey. Um, I have gone through uh, mental health struggles myself, but um, even more than that, I've struggled a lot with chronic illness and found a lot of parallels in, in the story between you know my life and, and what, what was going on in Hellblade. And it was really, really powerful. I think you guys made something so special. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. It was a really interesting 
game to make and kind of I think for me and a lot of people in, in the team went into it with a fairly kind of uh, shallow understanding of psychosis and it was a kind of a real privilege for us to work with scientific collaborators to understand sort of the science behind really the way the mind works and how things like psychosis can can manifest voice hearing and and seeing visions and having sort of unique beliefs about the world around them and that was a really valuable kind of journey to go through you know certainly for me you know and ultimately kind of think about your own mental health and you know think about how you perceive the world around you and things and then for kind of the game to actually be released and come out and and then have the impact that it's had has just been it's just been incredible but we've always kind of tried to make games that leave an impact on players and we are and I am really super proud of just how deep that that impact has been there's kind of a lot of people that that I've spoken to who have made that connection to Senua in the same way that that it sounds like you you have mm-hmm. and, and, and found that she is someone that people can really really relate to it's interesting because I mean I've never experienced psychosis myself you know and I kind of went into it being like well you know I've dealt with anxiety and depression you know I don't know how it's gonna be playing this game but I made all these other parallels that I really didn't expect to make. Uh, I've been chronically ill pretty much my whole life. And just even how Senua experiences the rot and the ending of that game, of her accepting that and accepting her circumstances. I mean, that was, it was like this, this radical acceptance. And that was like, it was really beautiful and inspiring and <laughs> emotional for me because I think that is, is something that I try to do on a daily basis. Say that I'm not def- defined by my illness. I'm more than that. And, and you know, I think Senua was doing that too. But ultimately, the game is about acceptance. Acceptance is a place that we all have to come to, you know, and ultimately acceptance of, of death, I think is, is core theme in the game and that's something that you know, comes to all of us in, in life at one point or, an, or another is um, is that that fear of death and that misunderstanding of death and something that can dominate people's lives the entire game is a is a battle you know we wanted the whole game to feel like a struggle until the end where you have to as a player you have to give up give up the fight and accept yeah. which uh, you know we really wanted people to go through that that realization you know what i love about hellblade and yeah it's a game that we we made but I, i've kind of experienced it with other games as well is that games allow you to engage in 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 someone else's world someone else's experiences in a way that allows you to kind of lower your defenses and your barriers and understand your own experiences more your own world more and i, and I think that's where games are elevated beyond film where you're a spectator and you're watching something on a screen but you're not interacting in it you're not making decisions you're not fully in that world and and i think that games have a unique opportunity to impact people in that way yeah i think so too I, i firmly believe that because i have made personal connections with games much more than i have film or other media because it's a chance for you to step into someone else's shoes. And even if it's something that you have not experienced yourself before or, or necessarily can, can relate to immediately, it's a way to, to make you more empathetic to these different issues. I think that, that is a really powerful thing. My hope is the game like Hellblade and other games that 
take on subjects like this will help to educate people will help reduce that stigma and give people the confidence to feel like they're not going to be judged as a result of something like this yeah, yeah. thank you very much thank you really appreciate it please don't Special thanks to the brave and articulate Elise Favis. Follow Elise on Twitter. She is at Elise Favis, F-A-V-I-S. Not surprisingly, she's doing all kinds of terrific work at the Washington Post right now. Thanks also to Simon Carlis, who recommended Elise for Heavily Pixelated. Thank you so much, Simon. Thanks also to Dom Matthews at Ninja Theory. Dom and the team are hard at work on Hellblade 2, which was announced at the Game Awards in December. Music tracks in today's episode include Dramamine, Dry Air, and Little Dipper, all from Poddington Bear. You can find those tracks at poddingtonbear.com. Tracks also include Upbeat by John Luke Hefferman, Padone by Anne LaPlantain, I Promise by Sam's N. Those tracks I found on the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Heavily Pixelated is produced by Sarah Deakins. Our technical producer is Stephen Nicolick. And if you'd like to hear extras from this episode, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash heavilypixelated. Extras for this particular episode include the unedited conversation between Elise and Dom at Ninja Theory. Also on the Patreon, you can find out the real reason why I am moving. Go to patreon.com backslash heavilypixelated to solve the mystery. Thanks also to our latest patrons, Addison Semko, Steve Saylor, Vince Shuley, and Roz Kromhoff. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until next time, I'm Scott C. Jones. We'll see you then. Shit, the moving truck's here. <laughs>